And good morning again. I'm glad to be with you this morning. I want to encourage you, if you have your Bibles, to turn with me to the book of Nehemiah. So we find ourselves this morning as we start off this new year and a new uh, journey through God's Word. Uh, if you don't have a Bible, we want to make one available to you. If you'll just slip up your hand, we'll make sure one gets in your hands. And if you're not comfortable doing that, just take your neighbors and make them do it. Um, but uh, we're so glad to, to have you with us this morning. And I, I think it's important. I want you to have a Bible in your hand, although we will provide the, the text up on the screen behind me. Uh, I want you to see that I'm not just making this stuff up. This is God's word, and it bears weight and truth on our, on our lives. And we take it seriously around here. And so I want you to follow along as we study God's word this morning. But as we start off the year 2022, we... We put to bed 2021. I hope you had a, a fabulous New Year's. Uh, we certainly did. And um, I've been praying for a while about where the Lord would kind of lead us into, uh, into this new year. And, and really felt like he was speaking that, that we, need to, um, we need to look at Nehemiah. We need to examine some truth that comes out of this book. And uh, maybe you've studied Nehemiah before. Maybe you haven't. Uh, I'm looking forward to walking through this with you. But maybe you ask the question, well, why Nehemiah specifically? What, what is so special about the book of Nehemiah? Especially thinking that it's an Old Testament book, and I'm, I'm to understand we don't live in Old Testament times anymore, that we are a New Testament church, right? So why do we think about, or why even consider the book of Nehemiah? Here's one reason. Because the world that we live in is broken. Incredibly broken. And people's lives are broken. Maybe your life is not as, as put together as you would like it to be. Maybe you've gone through some things in the last year or two, as many in the world have. People's lives are incredibly broken and need to be fixed. And not only that, the church today, unfortunately, is broken in a lot of ways. And I won't even go, I won't go so far as to say that our church specifically is broken, but there are some things that we need to shore up. There are some things that as members of this body of Christ here at Redeemer Church, we need to fix. We need to consider some things. We need to shore some things up. We need to stabilize some things. And see what happens, brokenness and destruction and dilapidation, that it presents this reality of vulnerability. And vulnerability then leads to further despair and eventually utter ruin. And when left in a state of brokenness, it is almost a guarantee that at some point, complete ruin and loss will result. It's almost a, a universal truth. And so what we want to do over these next 13 weeks or so as we walk through the book of Nehemiah, we want to examine what God's word says about rebuilding and repairing that which is broken. And I believe, <coughs> excuse me, I believe Nehemiah offers the building plans that would, that would be sufficient for us to rebuild. It's interesting, Nehemiah actually means in Hebrew, God has comforted. That's what his name means, God has comforted. And so this morning, if this is 
you. If you've come this morning as you start the new year going, oh my goodness, what a terrible year 2021 has. I hope it's not the same for 22. Or if you approach the year as many have, and say, God, how much longer? How long will you tarry? Will you give us another year? Come quickly, Lord. If you just feel the weight of brokenness in your life, I want to invite you to hang on with us over the next several weeks as we walk through this amazing book that will both challenge and convict and encourage and show us how we rebuild. With any good study in God's word, we want to look at it in its context, right? We want to we know how we got here, what we're looking at, what's going on. And so we're going to do that. Let me just give you a, a chronological walkthrough of what's going on in the book of Nehemiah. The book of Nehemiah ends the Old Testament narrative chronologically. Now, I know you're looking in your Bible and it kind of falls in the middle of the Old Testament, but if you're looking at the the timeline, the chronological timeline of the Old Testament, Nehemiah closes the canon for the Old Testament. It's the final word of, that begins the then 400-year period between the events of the Old Testament and the events of Matthew in the New Testament. So Nehemiah is the very end, chronologically, of the Old Testament. It's actually a little bit ironic because the way Nehemiah ends in verse, uh, in chapter 13, the very last sentence of Nehemiah says, remember me, oh my God. And yet for 400 years, God would be silent to his people before Jesus arrives on the scene. So how did we get here? Again, what is the timeline? Well, there was a, there was a capture and an exile. That happened in the nation of Israel. In 605 BC, uh, the, the Babylonian king Nebuchadnezzar comes and takes over the nation and the region of Judah, and he takes the people into captivity. This is the early parts of the book of Daniel. You can read uh, with the characters of like Daniel and Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego or Rakshak and Benny, if you're familiar with the VeggieTales version. And so you have 605. Uh, where they, they enter into this time of exile. They're taken into captivity. And then in 586, just a few years later, uh, the temple, Solomon's temple that he built, this, this grand and glorious place of worship is destroyed, and Jerusalem is sacked and destroyed. This is the events of Ezekiel that would happen in this time frame. From 593 to 571, the events of, of the book of Ezekiel are happening presently in this time in 10 more years in 561 bc the king of judah who was also taken into captivity through nebuchadnezzar is released from prison after being imprisoned for 36 years the nation of israel has been leaderless for 36 years while they are in exile and then in 539 bc daniel interprets the handwriting on the wall you remember that famous scene in Daniel 5 where uh, this hand appears out of nowhere and begins to inscribe things on the wall, and it freaks out King Darius at the time. Uh, this is that event, right? And so five, that happens in 539. The Persian king Cyrus captures Babylon with no resistance, 
Uh, Babylon is now ruled by the Persian king, uh, and the Jewish people are now under a different regime. They're still in exile. They're still gone from their land. They're still not in Jerusalem, uh, but now it's not the Babylonians. It's the Persians. All right, then in 538, Cyrus, Cyrus releases the Jews from their captivity, and he ends their exile. In fact, it's how the book of 2 Chronicles ends. In 2 Chronicles 36, we read this, that now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord by the mouth of Jeremiah might be fulfilled, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, so that he made a proclamation throughout all his kingdom and put it in writing. Thus says Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kingdoms of the earth, and he has charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judah. Whoever's among you of all his people, may the Lord, his God, be with him. Let him go up. We also see this further explained and clarified in Ezra chapter 1. Thus says King Cyrus, king of Persia, the Lord, the God of heaven, has given me all the kings of the earth. He's charged me to build him a house at Jerusalem, which is in Judea. Whoever's among you, all his people, may his God be with him. Let him go up to Jerusalem, which is in Judea, and rebuild the house of the Lord, that is the temple, the God of Israel. He is the God who is in Jerusalem. And let each survivor in whatever place he sojourns be assisted by the men of his place with silver and gold, with gold, with goods and with beasts, besides free will offerings for the house of God that is in Jerusalem. And then in Jeremiah chapter 25, this was the prophecy that Jeremiah spoke at the time regarding this event. Jeremiah 25, starting in verse 11. It says that this whole land shall become a ruin and a waste and these nations shall, shall, these nations shall, shall serve the king of Babylon 70 years. Then after 70 years are completed, I will punish the king of Babylon. And in that nation, the land of the Chaldeans, for their iniquities, but declares the Lord, making the land an everlasting waste. I will bring upon that land all the words that I have uttered against it, everything written in this book which Jeremiah prophesied against the nations, for many nations and great kings shall make slaves even of them, and I will recompense them according to their deeds and the work of their hands. So 70 years the nation of Israel has been in captivity, first by the Babylonians and Nebuchadnezzar, then in Persia. But this King Cyrus releases them after 70 years. That's a long time. It's a long time to be away from home, 70 years. Imagine all that changes in the world in 70 years. Let me just put this in perspective for you. 70 years ago today was 1952. Here's how the world has changed in the last 70 years. The average cost of a new house in 1952 was $9,050. Today, just here in Lee County, the average cost of a house in Lee County is $368,000. The average wages earned in a year in 1952, $3,850. 
Here in Lee County, the average household income is $40,000. This will make you sick. The average cost of a gallon of gas in 1952 was 20 cents. The average national for a gallon of gas today is $3.28. The average cost of a new car in 1952, $1,700. The average, the national average of a new car today is $42,258. The average cost of rent in 1952 is $80 per month. Right here in Lee County, we're, we're just looking in our context, we're not looking anywhere else. Right here in Lee County, the average cost of a one-bedroom apartment is $1,672. The cost of a house, a single-family home, will be anywhere from $2,500 to $3,000. A pound of hamburger meat. 1952 is 53 cents a pound. It's almost $5 today. This, this, is, this is, uh, speaks to my heart. Bacon <laughs> per pound in 1952 is 53 cents a pound. Today it's almost $6. A children's tricycle. Who remembers kids' radio flyers? Right? Red tricycles, yeah. Yeah, $14.50 in 1952. Today you can't find them under $80. $90, $100. Those are the plastic ones. Those aren't even the cool red metal ones. Not only that, we put a man on the moon. We've discovered the internet. We have electric cars. We can make phone calls all around the world with the push of a button. Not only can we make phone calls, but we can actually sit in our living rooms and see people face-to-face from all over the world. We have access to literally all of the information in our pockets. And unfortunately, it's held people captive for about no, 20, 30 years or so now. But imagine how different the world looked then being removed from your home and from your country for 70 years. Things change, sometimes drastically in 70 years. And so they're, they're, the exile's over. They are able to return back. And then in 538 to 457 B.C., the events of the book of Ezra happened. And Ezra will overlap some with Nehemiah, and we'll look at that into the 400s, but you have the first wave of, of exiles, of, of, of sojourners traveling back to Jerusalem. It's within this time frame that the prophets Haggai and Zechariah happen. And I would encourage you, if you've not read those two books before, to take some time this week, over the next couple of weeks, and read those books, especially Zechariah. It is a fascinating read. In fact, I want to just give you a few verses. This is what the people would have heard Zechariah uh, pronounce over them. There's a, there's a clear picture of the Jesus that is to come many times within the book of Zechariah. There is encouragement 
as they make this journey back home, as they have been gone for 70 years, they're discouraged. Things are broken. Things are unstable. They're not sure what is going to become of them. This is what the prophet Zechariah would profess over them. In Zechariah 2, 10 and 11, this shall be their lot in return for their pride because they, I'm sorry, that's Zephaniah. That's not Zechariah. Zechariah, here we go, 2, verse 11. Many nations shall join themselves to the Lord in that day and shall be my people, and I will dwell in your midst. And you shall know that the Lord of hosts has sent me to you. It's a prophecy about Jesus who is to come in Zechariah 9, verse 9. He says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming. Righteous, having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the fowl of a donkey. You remember at Easter time how Jesus rides into Jerusalem? On the back of a donkey. Zechariah 3, verse 9. He also says, For behold, on the stone that I have set before Joshua, on a single stone with seven eyes, I will engrave its inscription, declares the Lord of hosts, and I will remove the iniquity, that is sin, of this land in a single day. Jesus on the cross. One event in one day removed the sins of the world and of the land. And finally in Zechariah 12, verse 10. And I will pour out on the house of David and all the inhabitants of Jerusalem a spirit of grace and pleas for mercy. So that when they look on me, on him who they have pierced, they shall see, they shall mourn for him as one mourns for an only child, and weep bitterly over him as one weeps over a firstborn. See, in this this difficult time, this difficult season of life, as they're making their way back into their land as they're beginning to sort of resettle some things and and put their lives back together after 70 years of brokenness god sent the prophet zechariah to speak to them and to offer a hope that is to come in jesus it was meant to be an encouragement and so in 515 as they're going about this the temple is rebuilt not to its former glory as solomon once built it but it's sufficient enough as the lord proclaimed it and it's met with opposition and project delays and all sorts of difficulty and and somewhere in the midst of that 518 bc there's a new ruler that is born in persia named xerxes the first and this xerxes you might recognize him if you've seen the movie 300 which is not an awesome movie i don't recommend watching it but if you have xerxes king xerxes in persia who battled leonidas at the battle of thermopylae if you know your world history this is the same guy xerxes is the same guy it's the same xerxes that esther marries same king same guy xerxes is born 
and he rises to power. In fact, in the book of Esther, you find Esther in Susa, the citadel, which is the same setting that Nehemiah finds himself in. I want to just chase this rabbit trail for a second. There's, There's an argument in biblical apologetics that grounds the text of Scripture in historical fact. These people existed. They are real people. These places existed. They are real places. You can visit some of them today. We have evidence that proves historically that what the Bible says is true. It's happened. Don't let anyone tell you or try to convince you that the Bible is just a bunch of made-up stories or tales. Or don't even even let them try to convince you that it's all just allegory and that it's not meant to be taken seriously. The Bible, both in the Old Old and New Testament, contains real people in real places doing real things, which has great significance and meaning and purpose for us all. World history confirms this. So you can't discredit the Bible in a sort of historical argument, it won't happen. And if you can trust the sourcing of the text, rooted in historical fact, then there's no sufficient reason not to trust the substance of the text either and what it says. So back to our timeline, in 558 B.C., Ezra departs Susa, and he joins uh, the people in Jerusalem, and then 13 years later, in 445 B.C., Nehemiah comes, and that's where we find ourselves this morning. Now that we have established our timeline, and we know where to go, let's look to Nehemiah 1. The words of Nehemiah, the son of Hachaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev, in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani... One of my brothers came with certain men from Judah, and I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who survived, the, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, "The remnant there in the providence, in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire." As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord, the God of heaven. And I said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples but if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them though you uh, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of heaven from there i will gather them and bring them to the place that i have chosen to make my name dwell there 
They are your servants and your people, whom you have redeemed by your, gr- your great power and by your strong hand. O Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant, to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name and give success to your servant today and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. Will you pray with me? God, we thank you for your word. We thank you that you've given it to us to read and to study. God, that you speak to us through it. You've not... um, left us alone to figure out what we're to do, but God, you've given us the truth that is found in, these, in this text. I pray as we study the book of Nehemiah over the next several weeks that you would open our hearts and our ears to hear and receive. May we be transformed by this text, Father. May it be a help to us as we seek to live lives that would glorify you, as we seek to exist as a church that would shine your light in this community as we seek to be disciples who make disciples. May we grow out of this, out of this book, Father, in this passage. We love you. I pray now that the words of my mouth and the meditations of my heart be pleasing unto you. Speak through me, Father. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen. A couple of things I want us to see very quickly as we look at this passage. The first thing I want us to see is Nehemiah's concern. Nehemiah's concern. Look again in verse 1 through 3. It says, This is the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year, as I was in Susa, the citadel, that Hanani, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. Let's stop right there because we want to look at the timing. We spent a long time setting the context of this, of the book, and so we have some dates here and some specific times. We want to be, be sure that we are considering that. The very first year of exile return is in 538 BC. That's when the king of Persia releases them and sends them back to their land, right? You remember that's, that was that, that starting event. This is now the year 445 B.C. So 93 years have passed since people first started returning to Jerusalem. 93 years. If you thought 70 years being gone from home is long, 93 years now being in your home, you would think things would be put back together. You'd think that things would be okay, that you've, you've rebuilt some things, you've got some things back in order. And and although we don't really know much about Nehemiah's age at this point, in fact, the Bible really does not speak much about Nehemiah's age. The reason I want to bring out the timing and the importance of the dates is to consider this. Nehemiah, my guess at this point, is probably an older, young adult to possibly middle age. You say, why do you point that out? Well, because he's lived long enough to gain some wisdom and experience and some favor to do what God has, has given him to do in this book, but he's also young enough to have the energy to do it. Why is this important? We'll get there in a little bit. 
But one thing that we see, we don't know much about his age, but we know that he's a cupbearer for the king. That is a position of high honor. It's a high-ranking position in the royal court. And his task, his job as cupbearer, is to guard the king himself from being poisoned. And sometimes that meant you have to drink the king's cup. And if you die, well, the king knows not to drink that particular drink. But it's a, it's a, it's a position given to only the most trustworthy of men. So he couldn't be a young man or a boy, right? That wouldn't make sense. And if he were too old of a man, he wouldn't have the role anymore. So this, this tells us that he's, you know, he's probably in that, that older, young adult to middle age stage of life. But he's just in Susa kind of doing his thing. Cupbearers are well paid in their role. They have a lot of wealth. He's well positioned in that he has direct access to the king. More access than even the queen would have. He's gained the influence uh, with people. He's got a certain status about him as cupbearer. But here's what's interesting. He's still Jewish. Like amidst all these, these, these great elements of life, Nehemiah is still one of God's covenant called people. And so despite the current state of life he's in, which, let's be honest, is pretty good. Like, Nehemiah has got it made in some ways. His identity, what he is concerned with, is himself as a Jewish man. As one of God's chosen people. That's what holds the place of prominence in his heart. Say, well, how do you know that? Well, look at the questions that he asks. When Hanani comes from Judea, from Judah, it says that Nehemiah asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile, and concerning Jerusalem. How do we know? It's, it's, the, way, it's the questions that he's asked. And it's highly likely, because 93 years have gone by, and if we're going to assume that Nehemiah is only middle-aged, it's very likely that Nehemiah has never been to Jerusalem. He was likely born in captivity in Susa. This is all he's ever known. He's never been there. Not only has he never been there, but he likely has no idea who these people are. He's never met them. He's never met these people. And yet the heritage and the legacy of being included in God's holy people resonates somewhere deep within Nehemiah's heart. And so he asks the questions, who was there? How did they fare in the exile, in the journey? Like, was there anyone I know? Any families that I might recognize? Family names I might recognize? And how was the journey? Was there any, any trouble in there? Did you experience any difficulties as you traveled? Did anybody not make it? Mind you, this was a journey that would have traversed about a thousand miles over land on foot from where they were in Susa to Jerusalem. Can you imagine traveling a thousand miles on foot? Let me just give you some geographical locations so you can wrap your head around this. From here, this building, to Washington, D.C., 
is about 1,000 miles. It's 1,034. Or if you want to go a little bit further west here to Louisville, Kentucky, it's actually 1,010 miles, a little bit less. Or if you want to go further west here to Beaumont, Texas, just outside Houston, it's about 1,028 miles. You're walking all of that on foot. Seems a little bit unbearable. And here, his question is, how did they make it? Are they okay? Did the people survive the journey? And he asks, how's Jerusalem? Are the people okay there? Are they thriving? Is the city still as beautiful as it once was? As I've read about, is the temple being used for the worship of Yahweh again? Is his glory on display in his holy city? See, there's this concern that Nehemiah has, this great concern for God's people. Because after all, it was such a blessing on his life to be a part of them. I wonder for us this morning, as we consider our context here in 2022 as the church, I wonder for us this morning if we have this same level of concern for God's people today. Like the church, the bride of Christ, his covenant people bought through Jesus' blood, eternally saved from their sins. Are you concerned for God's people today? Like, is there a high regard and high value and high level of importance placed in your life as a child of God in the way that you get to participate in the body of Christ? Do you have a value and a concern for others who are in that body of Christ? Do you care enough or are you concerned enough with the current state of the church today both globally and locally our church to ask hey how are things going are things okay and i don't mean just this sort of polite social pleasantry that we try to mask ourselves in today hey how's it going man good i'm fine Good, that's so good to hear. And then you go on your merry way. That's not what Nehemiah is asking here. He's asking something deeper. See, here's the problem. I think most people today are hardly concerned at all with the way things are. And that's why you see such division and damage that has ran rampant in the church the last few decades. Because see, what we've done is in our own lives, we've privatized our faith to the point where we don't talk about it at all outside of the church because it might offend someone. But then inside the church, we try to categorize and separate things into those who are professionals and then those who are just laymen. They're just kind of church-going people. And we sideline ourselves and remove ourselves from the conversation because it's not our role or our responsibility. We'll leave that to the pastors and the leaders and the deacons and those who are educated, those who are, are comfortable being in front of people. We'll, we'll leave that to them and we'll just not be 
concerned with things. Someone else will take care of it. I want to read you a quote from James Hamilton. He says, if you care more about how your favorite college football team, don't you dare. Now I'm going there. If you care more about your favorite college football team does on a Saturday than you do about how the gospel is advancing, that's probably because your identity is more shaped by the time you've spent watching and talking about football than the time you've spent studying the Bible. Which do you know better? Roster and stats and prospects for your team or the contents of Scripture? Do you feel more passionate about the players of your favorite team or the pastors and missionaries and co-laborers of the gospel? Which would grieve you more? Seeing your favorite team lose the national championship just a couple weeks or hearing that Christians are being persecuted and I'll add killed in a faraway place. We have a very serious lack of concern in our culture today. It's a sad thing when a man of God who's walked with the Lord for what he would say is 30, 40, 50 years can't memorize or recite a single Bible verse, but he can give you sports stats from 50 years ago. It's sad when he has very shallow doctrine, but he can coach a team, or he can name every song and, and sing every lyric to every song on the radio. Or what so often happens is there's this, this excuse or justification for a genuine lack of concern masked in some cheap faux assumption of God's sovereignty. Like you might hear, well, God must have a plan, and I may not like what's happening right now, but I trust that God will just work it out. That's not concern that's a cheap cop-out on your part. Yes, God is sovereign, and yes, he does act according to his will, but he's also invited us and tasked us and charged us as the church to steward and care and know his bride. Nehemiah has a deep concern for people that he's never met and for a place that he's never been why? Because God in his holiness and in his glory has declared that these people are his. And he has set them apart for his purposes. That is absolutely a big deal to be concerned about. God in his sovereignty and in his glory and in his holiness has set the church today apart. And he has declared that they are mine. At what level are you concerned for them? Their answer. It's not good. Verse 3. 
The remnant there in the province who had survived the exile is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down. Its gates are destroyed by fire. The church today faces an unprecedented time in its history of destruction, decay, dilapidation, in the movement of deconstructionism, where people are taking the, the foundations of faith and breaking them apart, calling the Bible insufficient anymore and calling God's word as old and outdated and no longer relevant to the world today because it's archaic. Churches with pastors who claim homosexuality as their preferred lifestyle choice. I read an article the other day of a Methodist pastor who was fired from his role. I'm sorry, he wasn't fired from his role. He was put on an indefinite leave of absence. Open-ended. Because on Saturday evenings, he liked to cross-dress as a trans woman and go do shows. And then get up and preach on Sunday morning. This is the state of the church that we're in today. Are you concerned? We live in dark, dark days. Number two, we see Nehemiah's composure. In verse four, as soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned. For days. See, to feel as deep as he did in his concern for God's people, this is a natural response. In fact, I would argue it's the only appropriate response. When, when deep within your soul, in your bones, you have a concern or something that will lead you to feel it right and in, and then the reverence and the the relationship the devotion that he has to the lord it's the only natural response ezra does something similar in ezra chapter 9 we see some similar response in Ezra 9 in verse 4. Ezra is amongst the people. And he discovers that there is sin within the camp. That the nation of Israel is engaged in a sinful behavior. It says, Ezra 4, Then all of Israel, because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles, gathered around me while I sat appalled appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice, I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and upon my knees spread out my hands 
laying prostrate before the Lord. He does the same thing just a couple of section, a couple of verses later in chapter 10, verse 1. While Ezra prayed and made confession, weeping and casting himself down. Do you have this disposition of your life? Have you ever had or felt a burden and a sorrow and a grief like this? I have. I had a friend growing up, uh, several years older than me. She was married. They had a family. Um, but they were youth leaders as I was just coming into sort of my preteen, teenage years. And they were most influential in my life. These are people that I looked up to and, and counted as, as a brother and sister, really, in a time of life that was very, very dark for me. And I treasured the relationship that I had with them. And without them, I, I don't know that I would have come to know the Lord. Without the love and the care and the concern that they showed me, I don't know where my life would be today. And just a few years ago, this couple divorced, in an ugly divorce, had a very broken um, root and foundation that I didn't realize. Not only that, but she seemingly departed from the faith for a little while, but then came back and claimed homosexuality, got married to another female. And just completely ripped apart anything that, that, that I knew. And Bethany can attest to this. I wept and mourned for years over this person. There were times where I would be dead asleep and would wake up sobbing at the thought of this person. Because what I knew experientially was not what they were proclaiming now. See, when we take the things of God seriously in our lives and tragedy and despair strikes those things, it should move us to a place of deep sorrow and mourning, not indifference. Not, well, it happens. It is what, I, there's a phrase that I hear all the time, it is what it is. Bollocks. See, how often do we passively move past the sin in someone's life or their life experience? Well, God will deal with them. They'll get theirs. They made their bed. I guess thou will have to lie in it. We say that all the time, don't we? And that's people that we often don't do life with. What about the people that we do do life with, that we see every single day or at least regularly? The people that are in within, within this own body of Christ. How passive are we against their life? Nehemiah has never been to this place. He's never met these people. 
He has no idea who they are, maybe by name and reputation only. And yet he viewed the, this, the relationship with God that he had in such a way, and he had such a love and concern for the things of God who, who he was a part of. So when something strikes and it devastates it, it affects him so personally as if it happened to him. And it causes immense sorrow. Number three, look at Nehemiah's contrition in verse 5 through 11. I said, O Lord, God of heaven, the great and awesome God, who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keeps his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, and the rules that you have commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses, saying, If you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, Though your outcasts in the uttermost parts of heaven, from there I will gather them and bring them to the place that I have chosen to make my name dwell there. He starts off this prayer by acknowledging God in five different ways. First, he calls him great. He calls him great as if there is no other, no one else. He is great. He is supreme but then he also calls him awesome and this is not the awesome as if god is cool this is the awesome as the the hebrew word uh translates it to fearful or to fear because as much as god is great and supreme and majestic and and big god is also someone to have your reverence he's someone to fear that greatness and that power and that majesty is also a scary thing. But then he also says that you keep covenant and, and you're steadfast. He calls him faithful and steadfast. You do it. You keep covenant. And he calls him loving. That he keeps covenant and steadfast love. Why is this important? Well, he, he, he draws out the character of God. He speaks to the character of God so that he can then do this. He makes a request. And it's, a, it's an odd request. He says, verse 6, Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open. Let your ear be attentive and your eyes be open. He's asking God to both see him and hear him. We do this with our children sometimes. When I'm trying to communicate something important, something that I want them to kind of hone in on, I'll say, I want you to look at me and hear me. I want to see your eyeballs so that I know that I have their full, undivided attention they are both hearing and seeing 
Nehemiah is asking for God's undivided attention. Why? So that he can do number three. To offer a confession. See, Nehemiah doesn't want to leave anything to chance. He he doesn't want to leave anything to chance. He wants to have God's full attention so that he then can confess his sin and the sins of the nation. He says, I pray before you day and night for the people of Israel, your servants, confessing the sins of the people of Israel, which we, he includes himself in that, have sinned against you. Even I and my father's house have sinned. It's a profound thing to feel and to bear the sins of others. See, he's including himself in kind of the national whole. He's he's sort of corporatizing the nation's sins in the end because although they are individual people, they make up the nation as a whole. Just like in the body of Christ today, we are individuals, we are parts that make up the whole. I wonder, have you ever prayed or confessed or repented of the sins as a whole? Or have you simply thought of what you've done? Have you asked for God's mercy and his grace For the church as a whole, recognizing the part that you've played in the greater sin. Or have you just kind of thought, well, I've taken care of my end, and so I'm good. Perhaps we ought to start praying not just over our own personal sin, but the sin of others. Name them. Call them out by name as you're praying. God, forgive the sins of this person and of that person and of that person. And I wonder, too, how often do we actually really pray for others? How often do we actually pray seriously for others? So I know I'm guilty of this. A lot of times someone will bear something to me, and I'll pray for you. Or I'll say a quick, God be with this person. They've they've mentioned this to me in passing, or they, they made this known on Wednesday night when we have our prayer meeting, fix that thing, help that thing, and then we move on. How often do we actually, with someone in our minds, Bear our souls on their behalf. Not only does he offer confession, he is reminded of a promise there in 8 and 9. This is, this is actually a promise that he says comes from Moses. Right? <clears throat> Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses. Saying, if you're unfaithful, I'll scatter you among the peoples. He's reciting scripture. He's quoting scripture. He's saying, God, do you remember what you said long ago? 
You want to know how you fix some of the brokenness in your life? What level of scripture are you able to recall? Like how much, how much of God's word is steeped in your heart so that when things become unraveled, you can ground them out and find that foundation of God's word again. Nehemiah here is saying, God, don't forget, you've said this. You've said that you would keep us if we keep your word. But you also said if we don't keep your word, if we sin, that you'll scatter us. I know that's what you said. But then he, he not only reminds God of that promise, he then claims that promise. In verse 10, he says, we are your servants, and you have redeemed us. God, we've done this. We've sinned. You've scattered us. We just spent 70 years in captivity. And we, we, you've allowed us to come back, and for the last 93 years, it's not gone so well there's been some junk still in our lives forgive us father and draw us back because we are your people and you have redeemed us and then the last thing he does in this prayer is he asks for god's favor Verse 11, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant. And not just the prayer of your servant. He doesn't, he doesn't um, make the mistake of thinking he's the only one. Like he's not so prideful and arrogant to think that he's the only righteous man. No, what does he say? He says, and to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name. He assumes that there are others that feel the same way that he feels. He assumes that there are others who are recognizing the brokenness and the, the dilapidation that is happening within the nation and within the city, and they're praying the same things. But he asks for favor. What specific favor? To grant him, that is Nehemiah, that God would grant Nehemiah mercy in the sight of this Man, we'll see next week what he means by that. But he asks God for favor. And see, his prayer isn't some sort of special formula or, or magical incantation to make God's will work or to get God to act. What is happening here is upon hearing this terrible news and being uh, having wept and mourned for days, Nehemiah offers up a very raw and heart-pouring, emotional eruption of a prayer of what's going on inside of him. He's crying out to God, and he's sort of putting it all on the table. How often do we just cry out and bear our souls and put it all on the table before a holy and righteous God? Last point I want to just bring out real quick is his career. The very last sentence. Now I was a cupbearer to the king. It's an interesting way to end the chapter. I was a cupbearer to the king. See, Nehemiah was not 
a church professional or a religious professional. That was actually Ezra. Ezra was the scribe, well-versed in the Old Testament. And Nehemiah was a cupbearer. He was your everyday, average Joe citizen, blue-collar guy. Why do I bring that out? Because it is too often you find the, the attitude and mentality of many is, well, I'm just not sufficient enough. I mean, who am I? I'm just your everyday guy. So is Nehemiah. So is Nehemiah. Yeah, he had a good, high-paying job and some influence within Persia, but he was just a guy. And you are too. I look forward to seeing what Nehemiah has for us next week. But as we think about this and as we think about what the concern that God has, you've heard me talk a lot about the church and the, the concern we should have in our lives for the church and for God's people. And here's the reality that if you've not confessed your sins, if you've not made uh, an act of repentance of those sins, if you've not called out upon the name of the Lord to be saved, you are not God's child. You are not part, you do not get to claim to be part of God's people, the church. I would encourage you to reconsider. I would encourage you as we start the year 2022, this very first of 52 Sundays, to consider the sin in your life and the consequences of that sin that will lead to death and damnation and eternal separation from a holy God. And as is our practice on the first Sunday of the month, we have prepared the Lord's Supper table. And we're going to move into that here in a minute. And so I want to just give some instructions very quickly. This table, this Lord's Supper table, is for the believer only. So this morning, if you have not claimed Christ, if you are not a believer and a follower of his, you are not his disciple, I would ask you that you would remain in your seats as we remember and celebrate the body and the blood of Christ broken and shed for us, for our sins. And so... Here's what I'm going to do. I'm going to pray. And then we will, uh, I'll ask you to stand and you can come down front and grab uh, a plate with the elements and make your way back to your seat. But let's take a minute to quietly reflect. Confess any sin that might need to be confessed. Don't come to this table having sin in your heart. And then we'll Take the Lord's Supper. God, I thank you for this time. Thank you for your word. God, I pray that we would take it seriously as Nehemiah has taken it. God, that we would have a concern and a, and a, um, a seriousness, a disposition of our heart 
that we would grieve the, the, the sin in the world and that we would confess it as if it were our own and that we would, uh, that we would long to, to labor hard to see you restore the brokenness. We thank you that you've invited us into that process, that you use us to help in the, the, the reconciliation and the restoration of the church and of the world. God, even now as we move into this time of the Lord's Supper table, we know that without the broken body of Christ and without the blood shed on our behalf, without the forgiveness of our sin that is offered within Jesus, we would have no way of ever doing such things. God, forgive us of our sin. Forgive us of our unrighteousness and our failure. God, be with this church as we seek to move into this new year committed and called to you and to your gospel. We love you and we thank you. It's in Jesus' name I pray. Amen.